Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have got another episode of the podcast. Back to a sort of normal podcast episode, um, which is to say that I have a couple of call-ins to respond to from my buddies Carl and Jason, good friends of mine who like to call in to live from Pelham's Wasteland and do a much better job of doing so than I do calling in to theirs. Um but whatever, that's, I, I think they're willing to accept that. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so I uh, have sort of three parts to this episode. I've done a little more planning than usual, I know. Very strange. Um, but the, the idea right now is to have sort of three sections, the first one being kind of about um, changes to the podcast going forward, um, specifically not so much changes necessarily to my process or my schedule, but especially to the back catalog. Um, so I'm going to talk about that first, and then I'm going to respond to calls. And then one of the sets of calls from Jason talks about a sort of idea that I want to essentially respond to in more depth to, to go a little deeper than just the sort of uh, immediate response to it. So I am going to do that for the third section. Um, I have no idea if the sort of timing of the different sections is going to line up at all, basically. Um, so we'll have to see um, timing wise. But yeah, that's sort of the idea for this episode. So let's get into it. All right, so the first thing to talk about has to do with back catalog stuff and a little bit with uh, front catalog stuff, for lack of a better term, kind of new things. Um, I've been I've been talking a lot about this idea of sort of scheduling and what I want to do with the podcast and the YouTube channel and uh, other kind of projects, either related to Life from Pelham's Wasteland or that sort of exist. Um, as kind of useful projects for me, but that aren't necessarily kind of um, associated with Live from Pelham's Wasteland, um, if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, the basically um, what I, one of the things that I've done recently is I've gone through and done something I've sort of been threatening to do for a while, um, which is I have uh, removed a number of episodes from the back catalog from distribution. Um, now, I have gone through and saved everything on my hard drive or, or actually on the, the external hard drive, but you, you know what I mean, saved copies of everything pretty easily, pretty easy to do that um, from within Anchor to make sure that nothing is actually lost. Um, but things are not going to be kind of distributed anymore that I don't think are really have much of any value to listen to, right? That's sort of the idea right now is that not necessarily, you know, I haven't gotten rid of, I think, any overviews or anything like that, any of the episodes that I think have kind of stuff that uh, is still worth listening to, but anything that is just like, you know, hey, I played, you know, these four games this weekend and let me tell you about how I had fun in all of them uh, over sort of an extended period. That's like, yeah, it's not really as necessary, right? I don't, I don't really need to 
continue to share that information, in my opinion, um, because that's just not right. That's that's the sort of stuff that goes bad instead of the stuff that stays fresh, if that makes sense to use a kind of food analogy, I guess. Um, right. That, you know, in the moment, those are fun things to listen to, I think. And that's part of what my idea was with the journal is to sort of create a space for that type of content, um, but where I could essentially, you know, have that sort of content um, be sort of consistently in that space rather than across all of the different episodes, right? Um, that's sort of the idea, if that makes sense. So anyway, um, one of the things I will say is that I have, uh, I have put uh, everything that um, I'm no longer distributing on the hard drive, downloaded it and saved it and all that sort of stuff. So anyone who is interested in any of that, um, any or all of it, you are welcome to um, send me an email at pelhamswasteland at gmail.com, which is now actually in the uh, show information. Um, and I guess maybe for a little while, I'll put it in the show notes too, as a like, you know, hey, if you want any of this, just, you know, let me know. Um, but basically, if you're interested in any of that content for whatever reason, for your own records or whatever, um, shoot me an email and I will uh, send you a link to a Google Drive folder with everything that I've removed in its original form in it. And you can listen to your heart's content or download it all and load up your uh, device with it or whatever else you might want to do with that audio or like, you know, try to you know, have an AI listen to it to create uh, an AI that rambles like I do. I saw a, um, a YouTube video of a guy who did that sort of thing with a particular Let's Player, and it was really funny, although the the um, AI was, right, because the way that the AI kind of works is that it tries to figure out what words should go next, but it doesn't really have a way to kind of plan out things. So it's really good at kind of nonsensical rambling, but not nearly as good at like, you know, telling a complete story or something like that, which is so anyway, the result being that you end up with kind of funny little bits, but not as much of a kind of like complete uh, narrative. Anyway, the point of all of that basically being that um, if anybody is interested in any of the material that has been removed from distribution on Life from Pelham's Wasteland, feel free to send me an email and I will uh, happily give you access to all of it. Um, this is also, I will say, sort of the first pass of this sort of thing. Um, I am thinking about going through. So the, the first pass was to get rid of everything that's just kind of not particularly useful at all. Um, I think the second pass may be to go through um, and try to take some of the stuff that is not as useful in its current form and kind of edit it or combine it or whatever else into um, episodes that are a little more um, up to date, especially with certain um, kind of overviews and stuff. I feel like there are some of them that I did a good job with and some of them that I did not do nearly as good a job with, especially based on kind of the the sense of a, a need to produce for lack of a better term. Um, and that therefore 
perhaps what I need to do is to kind of go back through and, um, you know, basically separate the, the wheat from the chaff sort of thing. And I could kind of take all of it down and then add back in the stuff that is um, useful in a sort of new edited form. That's sort of what I'm leaning to right now is to essentially kind of take all of the the stuff that is like, ah, this is okay, but not great, and edit it down into uh, the best bits and then, you know, turn that into something that is uh, worth listening to instead of something that is just sort of noise drowning out the signal sort of thing, I guess, which is, anyway, I know it's one of those things that um, the Anchor community seems to go back and forth on a little bit. Um, I know that my buddy Jason Connerly is uh, not a big fan of removing things from distribution. And if there was a way to do like I can do on YouTube, where what I, one of the things that I did on YouTube was similar, but on YouTube, one of the things you can do is you can um, set videos to unlisted, um, which means that anybody can still access them if they have a link to them, but not they won't show up in searches or anything like that. And so I have a playlist that is all of my unlisted videos. And um, anybody who wants to come to the channel and look through that can very, very easily go through and um, see everything that is unlisted, essentially, and um, watch those videos and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Anchor doesn't have a system that works like that, unfortunately. And if they did, I would happily do that. Um, as it is, I think this is the best solution. Um, and like I said, what I would like to do is go through and edit some of the, the older stuff into something that is more useful for the present. Um, I am not a particularly adept editor of audio or video at present. Um, but you know, no way to learn without doing it or rather seems like that's the best way for me to learn, which is to say that I'm, you know, gonna improve by working through those sorts of things. And that therefore I just need to, you know, spend some time working on them. Um, anyway, so that's sort of the, the plan going forward. We're sort of in a, a partial state right now where I've gone through basically all of season one and about half of season two and, um, kind of uh, got rid of the, the obvious stuff in terms of distribution. And like I say, it's, it's all saved. So I still have copies of everything. Um, but it's one of those things that it's, you know, I, especially I think one of the things for me is that um, for new people who might show up at the podcast, I don't really want them to come to the podcast and listen to an episode that I don't think is very good and then be like, Oh, this is, you know, this is what, um, live from Pelham's wasteland is like instead of, right. That's one of the things with my YouTube channel. That's part of why I unlisted a bunch of stuff is because it's all basically things that are just not particularly relevant to what I'm doing anymore. Not uh, particularly good content in terms of kind of well thought out, well crafted discussion and all of that. Um, and that's, you know, the, the point of unlisting it is basically just less about kind of 
making sure that no, it never sees the light of day and more about trying to make sure that um, that doesn't kind of reflect poorly on my current system of doing things and all that, if that makes sense, right? So anyway, that's sort of what's going on with the back catalog. Um, I'm hoping that uh, I get some time to work on that a little more this weekend. Um, I think we will we will see what I am able to come up with. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be good. I think it's I think that is actually a, a benefit to my um, mental perception of the podcast going forward, essentially, that I, I think that I will um, end up really appreciating the, the transformation of the podcast from kind of a complete record of everything that I've ever said online to a sort of more polished, more, more structured, more edited version of that, if that makes sense, because I'm, yeah, anyway, all of that is to say that's sort of what's going on. So if for some reason, I can't imagine that you would go back and look for any of the things that I removed because they were all trash. Um, most of them didn't have very many listens. Most of them were just, you know, here's a report of, you know, the four games I played this weekend sort of thing. And it's, you know, that's one of those things that I just don't think is very valuable uh, years later, essentially. Um, maybe, you know, if somebody wants to write a biography of me, um, that'll be valuable to them, in which case they know where to find it on my hard drive um, because it's pretty easy to find. It's just in the, the podcast folder on the external hard drive. Um, and it's all labeled and all that sort of stuff. So they can listen to all of that or they can email me and ask me for a link to a Google Drive uh, folder and download it themselves or whatever. But um, anyway, Aside from that, aside from, right, it's sort of like, you know, uh, an author's letters, right, that, you know, there's probably some good stuff in there that has been lost, but also, you know, the average reader of whatever given author probably doesn't need to sift through a thousand pages of author's letters to learn more about the particular author, right, that that's just not really what, you know, the average Tolkien reader can enjoy The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings without reading all of Tolkien's letters um, or read The Recognitions in J.R. without reading Gaddis's letters or anything like that, um, that it's really more for kind of the specialist at that point. And there aren't any specialists with regard to Life from Pelham's Wasteland, except basically me, and I don't want to distribute it. So as the reigning tyrant of this region, that's uh, what I've decided. So yeah, that's uh, that's how things are going to be for a little while at least. And now we are on to Collins. So first, we're going to hear from Carl Rodriguez, the geomologist himself, and then we have a couple of calls from Jason Connerly. And I'm going to respond um, at least to Carl in between and probably break up Jason's calls into separate responses. But anyway, yeah, let's get into it. Hey, Arlen, I for one will not be deleting your podcast and I do appreciate uh, your political commentary. I think it is a, a good thing to let us know what's going on in the world and how you feel about it. And, um, you know, yeah, let's uh, be better people 
and really call out uh, hypocrisy on you know at at all different levels and um, be better to each other. I I did see sort of a a Twitter on my Twitter like a YouTube feed or something where people well there is a woman having a medical issue in a car and people rallied to it. You know someone helped stop the car. Uh, helped her out of the car across traffic putting themselves in danger and that's really what we should be about is helping one another yeah and i i totally agree carl the value of helping one another and especially i think one of the things um that is kind of a, a subtle point that sometimes gets lost is that it is valuable to you to help other people in your in your tribe in your community or even just kind of in the world um which is right socrates tells us that it's uh, worse for you to do evil than to have evil done to you and i think that the the opposite is true as well that it's better for you to do good than it is to do or I guess not quite the opposite, but that it is, it is valuable to you to do good in sort of the same way. Um, anyway, which is to say that I, I definitely agree about the value of helping each other. And I, I'm trying to balance the political stuff out a little bit, especially to say that um, I think one of the things I am going for is trying to figure out effective ways to talk about the political stuff, um, which goes back to, like I said, that maybe what we need is not, you know, here's the things you don't discuss in polite society, but here's the ways to discuss um, things that could otherwise make it much more uncomfortable to discuss these things in polite society, which is kind of a, an important distinction in my mind. Um, all of which is to say I totally understand anybody not enjoying the political stuff, um, but I think it is important, and so I'm going to keep talking about it. Um, probably not uh, for like any kind of single episode as like a whole episode on political stuff, but probably still as like a little bit of, you know, here's, you should be aware of these things that are going on, and here's why, you know, in my opinion, these arguments are... Um, not well crafted or that these are, you know, hypocritical behavior on the part of individuals or things like that, because I think that is important. And, and part of the point is that it's important, not just for any kind of particular group or person or anything like that, but that having that level of open criticism is what, right, that that's what the value of free speech is all about, is that kind of open criticism which is to say that, you know, I think that there's a way in which people, you know, free speech as like a good in itself versus free speech as a means towards a good, right? I can't remember the philosophical terms, but there's a, an idea about like, you know, things that are, you know, sort of uh, primary goods and secondary goods, right? Things that, you know, you do because they themselves are good and things that you do because they lead to good things, right? That, you know, maybe working is not really a good thing, but if working allows you to, you know, pay for a home and food and all the things you need to live, then therefore it's, you know, maybe not great, but it's at least 
good enough is the idea. Um, and that in the same way, I think there is a lot of value in that kind of discussion and, and talking through those things. And But I also recognize that there is a real discomfort to it. And I think um, I am trying myself to embrace the idea of a, a valuable sort of discomfort, right? Discomfort as a factor, as an element of effectively taking in information, because not all of the information that you take in, if you are um, not kind of screening or filtering the information as much is going to be comfortable, right? That there's, you know, there's shitty things in the world and shitty people and all that sort of stuff. And that that's going to likely lead to discomfort, but that, you know, being uncomfortable based on taking information does not mean that you should ta stop taking in information. It means that you should, you know, respond to the things that cause discomfort, essentially. Um, which is not easy, but is important. And that's sort of a, a classic refrain, right? You know, ethics isn't easy, but it's necessary type thing. So anyway, yes, I, I really do agree about the, the value of helping people and helping each other. And, and especially the way that it's, you know, valuable to the person doing the helpful thing, which I think is something that is perhaps not talked about quite enough sometimes in that discussion. But Anyway, yes, so uh, I'm going to keep talking probably not too much about the political stuff, although more than likely every once in a while bits and pieces will uh, sneak their way into the discussion, but you know how it goes. Anyway, and also like, you know, there's sort of an element of like everything is political or has a political element and therefore, you know, you, you can't escape politics no matter how hard you want. So anyway, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, thanks, Carl. And uh, let's go to Jason. Hey, Arl and Jason here. I paused in where you're responding to my calls because I, I wanted to answer some of the or talk to some of your earlier points before I forget. Uh, it, as far as sleep and not being able to cheat the system, I mean, you're not wrong. I don't get nearly enough sleep, which you can obviously tell through my calls as I call through you and I'm muddle-headed and everything else. Um, so, yeah. The sleep thing is very important. But as far as redoing your schedule and figuring out, I, I think you really need to, and you, you already know this and you've already done this, I'm sure, you, you need to sort out what you gain from each activity and what value each activity has and then rate those and see what you want to do. So if gaming every night of the week, but like you've already talked about that, you know, the idea in the past, and my minutes up, so the idea that, yes, you could game seven nights a week, but is that the Mac, is that your best use of your time? Where there are benefits to gaming, the social aspects, the creative aspects, but there's also benefits to spending time with your family. There's also aspects to reading. So maybe it makes more sense to game three nights a week, you know, spend two nights a week with your family and spend two nights a week reading or writing or something, right? I mean, whatever, I'm just throwing arbitrary numbers out there. But there's a balance in there. And I think the podcast and YouTube channel also needs to be looked at in that way. W what do you gain from doing the podcast and YouTube channel? Is Obviously, you're reaching out, you're socializing, you're, you're getting input back and forth from people. Do you get more input from people if you do it four times a week compared to if you did it twice a week? You, you know, I, I mean, I'm going to interact with you almost every show, but 
I'll give you just as much interaction, whether it's twice a week, it's four times a week, really, in the end. But do, does that YouTube channel and podcast, is that an audio journal? So is it the best way to do an audio journal? You know, and those are the questions you have to ask. So if, especially since you said, I, I think, I know there are times you, pod, you record for podcasts when you're walking, but a lot of times the podcast you're sitting at your desk I th- is a feeling I get. And, you, you know, so if you're sitting at your desk, is that time best spent recording an audio podcast, right? Or is it better spent writing or doing something else? Or You, you, you know where I'm going with that. And, and not that I don't want you to podcast, but if you, if you cut your podcast in half, but you're doing other things that are going to benefit you more, well, you need to do that. that that's the right decision, you, you know? And, and if you figure out that, you know, your creative time, your maximum creative time for writing is two hours at this period of the day, then that's what you should be doing that period of the day if you can. Yeah, so as usual, Jason coming in with uh, good advice, you know, setting me straight um, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, anyway, I, uh, yeah, I really appreciate this call in Jason for a number of reasons, um, but especially the way in which I think you have uh, hit on kind of precisely sort of the core points, which is to say that, you know, yeah, I need to. A little bit like I, I have been known to say that um, trad gaming is all basically just resource management. And I think there is some truth to that. I don't think, I think that is kind of an oversimplification at times. Um, but I do think that the, the kind of interaction with the game generally is built on um, resource management, right? That's how the game works is that you... Uh, manage um your your resources essentially right and whether that's you know hit points and spell slots or if that's you know your attributes in cipher system or if that's any number of other things right but at the core if you know the way the game works is you you know do stuff and uh end up putting together your um for lack of a better term, end up putting together your kind of material out of, um, or the, 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 the process of the game is built on kind of, you know, using resources to get what you want, then that's kind of there, which is to say that, you know, in real life, that's important too, right? You only got so many hours in the day. And uh, if you're like me, you need to spend a good chunk of them sleeping um, and all of that sort of stuff. So anyway, um, Yes, I, uh, I have been working on that sort of thing. And I'm going to talk in a little more depth um, later on. That's going to be sort of the last section of this podcast. Although it might not be the total last section because I, we might have a sort of appendix um, based on the fact that I just got an email um, a couple of minutes ago about another, another person calling in. But we'll see if I end up responding to that in this episode. Anyway, um, as far as the sleep things go, yeah, I think that is totally that um, there is a, a real way in which you can't, you know, you can't cheat the system. You can, you know, maybe take the loan, but the loan comes due with interest at some point type thing. Um, and especially uh, having done some 
research recently into ideas about kind of uh, neurodivergence um, and autism and depression and ADHD and all of these different kind of things. Um, one kind of major discussed factor has to do with the way in which lack of sleep can impact your brain chemistry, right? Um, and especially that, you know, if you don't sleep enough and you don't have enough kind of mental energy to function as effectively, right? It's harder to kind of behave rationally and analyze things and all that sort of stuff. And also even on the basic level of like a lot of um, various like neurotransmitters are produced while you sleep because your body is kind of busy not doing other things, is not busy doing other things. And therefore you kind of have some time to do that. And so you, one kind of theory about like depression and um, the need for sleep while being depressed is that basically you're not getting as good sleep and not enough sleep. And so your body says, okay, well, we need more sleep so that we can, you know, start cranking out serotonin and dopamine. Um, and that the result being that you feel tired all the time. And, and, you know, in my case, end up sleeping, you know, 12 or 14 hours a day and feel half asleep when you're awake sort of thing. Um, anyway, the, the point of all of that basically being that I think there is a lot of truth to the, the way in which lack of sleep is uh, punishing in some pretty seriously uh, detrimental ways, right? That you you can't really get away from the fact that you need sleep. You just can kind of, you know, you can kind of put it off for a time, but you can't really get away from the need, right? Anyway, um, so I thought I would share that little bit with you as well. Yeah, I totally lost whatever the other point I was going to make was, and I damn it, I need to pause in Miller's show to call in. But yeah, I think you need to, and I'm sure you've already, you're already doing this, evaluate your time and figure out. And if it benefits you more to podcast or YouTube less, then you should. Oh, I know what the other thing I was going to say. You, you were talking about animation and drawing and things through podcasts. Man, if you're going to do animation, there's only one answer. We know this. That's rotoscoping, Arlen. Rotoscoping is the answer. So I'm going to, I know Jason is calling in as a joke, but I'm going to push back on this and say, um, I mean, if you compare the best rotoscoped films in existence to the best uh, traditionally animated, hand-drawn animation films around, I think you will find that uh, The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast are better than whatever you might put up against them as far as animated films go. Um, I will say, what was it? Is um, is the, the film adaptation of A Scanner Darkly, which is a, a book by Philip K. Dick, um, that is rotoscope. I think it's by Richard Linklater, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's, uh, rotoscope. So right. Real people, but then digitally I, it's, I don't know if originally rotoscoping was done digitally or kind of analog, but that in this case done, done digitally. Um, so it's kind of animation over real visual frames. Um, or, or frames that came from kind of, you know, actual, you know, a camera capturing uh, frames of, of still images on film. Um, and um, 
what was I going to say? Oh, so there's a, it's a pretty good movie. I, I enjoyed it. The Philip K. Dick story is pretty good. It's, it's basically about, you know, paranoia and drugs and all this stuff. Um, so I thought it was a pretty good story. I don't think it's as good as uh, some of Philip K. Dick's best stuff, but pretty good film. And, you know, Philip K. Dick adaptations tend to be kind of an interesting thing because the author himself was so kind of idiosyncratic in a lot of ways that there's something interesting about kind of adapting his work to the screen um, and kind of to what degree do you maintain what comes from the original versus like, for instance, something like Blade Runner, which definitely has some sort of core elements. But, you know, for instance, in the in the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? A, there's a lot of, of world stuff that is not in the film Blade Runner. And also there's some fairly major kind of uh, character relationship stuff that is fairly different in the, the book. It's much more about um, the girl uh, which is, uh, to say that not that the movie isn't as much about, and, and especially the way that, is it, is it, uh, Pris is the character's name, who is the renegade android, and then Sean Young's character, whose name escapes me, Rachel, right, who are, like, the same model of replicant is part of the idea in the book, and that there's a sort of, kind of, like, union dualism thing going on there, um, whereas in the film, obviously they're played by different actors, uh, and also the kind of climactic sequence has a lot more to do with, uh, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard. And, um, I can't remember the actor who plays Roy Batty right now for some reason. Name escapes. I know, I, I know him, but, um. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, Rick Deckard and Roy Batty as the kind of masculine confrontation between warriors is is a really central part of the finale of Blade Runner that is um, almost entirely kind of thematically not, right? There is a sort of confrontation, but it's, you know, in the space of a page, and Rick Deckard just shoots Roy Batty basically in the book, spoilers. Um, but that in the film, it's this kind of climactic, titanic struggle between these two men um, that is sort of what the film is, is built around in a lot of ways in terms of sort of the procedural side of Blade Runner. But anyway, um, what was, oh, rotoscoping. So in A Scanner Darkly, there are a couple of sequences that are really cool with rotoscoping. There's one sequence that is um, designed to be point of view from one of the characters as he kind of circles around the living room. And it's wonderful because of the way that it is animated, the the perspective isn't quite perfect. And so it is incredibly kind of disorienting and vertigo inducing and right. It's, it's perfect for the film, right. That is about kind of paranoia and dissociation and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but the rest of it is mostly just like, you know, doesn't really add much from rotoscoping. So anyway, I guess if there's a rotoscope film that you think I should check out, Jason, you should let me know. Um, but otherwise, I will continue to uphold that uh, The Lion King is the finest animated movie ever made. The original one, the, the new one, I haven't seen the whole thing. I watched some clips from it and thought it looked okay, but not great. Um, and also, there's some weird changes that they made, especially to some of like the specific specifics of the script that make it a lot worse, um, in my opinion, which is to say that the sort of 
uh, triggering moment for the finale is when um, Simba has a, a vision of his father, Mufasa, right? Simba is sort of out wandering alone, sort of wondering what's going on. Nala has told him he has to go back and he says, I can't go back. And he sort of goes off on his own and he actually looks down into the reflection before the second sequence of doing that, which is a clever uh, bit that I didn't notice until I was older. Uh, but then he meets Rafiki, who is the sort of uh, Merlin mentor character, who's the baboon, um, who's talking to him and uh, says, you're Mufasa's boy. And he says, you knew my father? Correction, I know your father. And uh, Simba says, I'm sorry to tell you, he died a long time ago. And Rafiki says, wrong again, and runs off and uh, leads Simba to this pool where he looks down and he looks down in the reflection of the pool and he says, that's not my father, that's just my reflection. And Rafiki says, no, look harder. And he kind of does something with his hands and the wind kind of comes up and the reflection is Mufasa instead of Simba. And then there is this kind of brilliant moment where like the whole world changes, right? They've been kind of inside this sort of like jungle section of the savannah, I guess, or like a copse of trees or something scrambling through the undergrowth and the weather comes up and the clouds come up and the sky is open and they're just out in the middle of the open plains and the clouds form Mufasa. And he says, Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba says, no, father, how could I? You have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. You must take your place in the circle of life. And part of the point is that what Mufasa says to Simba is not about duty. It's about ontology, right? He doesn't say you have a duty to do. He says, remember who you are. And part of the point is that the difference between what he says in that moment and in other kind of versions of that story um, anyway, which is to say that that's, that's not really, you know, the Lion King being the best animated film on the basis of the style of animation being so good, but it is, you know, all of the other stuff that is sort of what leads to that. Although there are some really impressive moments of, of animation, especially I think the, uh, the wildebeest sequence where Mufasa dies is uh, really brilliantly animated. Um, there's a couple of kind of great bits and pieces that are done that I think have very much to do with animation and the kind of unrealism that you can engage in almost with animation because you don't need to like film real stuff. The sort of way in which you can do these kind of wild things. Um, Anyway, so yeah, that's all just to say that, you know, if there were a rotoscoped film as good as The Lion King, I would uh, totally agree that rotoscoping is the way to animate. But uh, given that there is not, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Jason. You know, the interesting thing about OD&D is if you go back to using chain mail, as was originally thought, even though they didn't play with chain mail, but you know, chainmail was considered the primary combat system, even though Gygax didn't use it. But if we go back and use chainmails, Daniel Norton's found, you know, if you listen to Vanity's Keep, fighters are big game heroes in chainmail because in chainmail, because you don't have hit points, you have hit dice. 
the way it works out, our fighters are not only much harder to kill, but they do a lot more damage. And, and you know, because they really do fight as that many more men. So fighters actually are, you know, that sword and sorcery big hero. We get that in Chainmail, and it actually does mirror that fiction, which is interesting. Not necessarily with the alternative combat system that you see in OD&D, the D20 system, but when you use Chainmail, fighters do stand out, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things I was thinking about, actually. I, I need to apologize to Daniel Norton that I have not looked in as much detail at Chainmail as uh, I think he would suggest is worth looking at it. Um, but I, I do think there is a lot of cool stuff there. Um, there's also so uh, Codex Martialis, which is a adaptation that is sort of built for the kind of uh, Pathfinder 1, D&D 3.5, D20 system stuff, although you could sort of adapt it to uh, any number of D20-based games. Um, one of the things they do is that characters have a martial pool based on their base attack bonus and that you get up to four dice worth of martial pool dice that are the actions you can take in a round. And so you get a a free um, five foot step or full move, and then you get four dice worth of actions and you can use these to strike or to parry or to do any number of other things, or to um, you can use multiple dice on one roll and take the best of your results. Um, so you could essentially roll with the equivalent of advantage or, or there isn't in 5e like double advantage but essentially like that where you roll three dice and take the best of them and there's some cool stuff that happens there so like if you score a critical hit um your damage bonus from a critical hit where you spent more dice on the hit is greater which is kind of a cool mechanic to reflect the idea of um you know putting it all into sort of one perfect strike type thing um, and then there's also a number of the different kind of feats give you uh, what they call free dice, which is to say that basically like, you know, if you spend at least one die on this action, you get another die for free to spend on the action. So like rolling with advantage. Um, and there's some cool stuff with that. So like you might have like specific kind of feats that give you specific kind of bonuses in certain situations that do some cool stuff. Um, but part of the point being that um, because you, so the, the normal uh, idea is that four is kind of the maximum for your combat pool without any other modifiers. So you can get more from like feats and stuff, but four is kind of the, the amount that you get just from base attack bonus. So if you have a, a BAB of plus four, you get four dice um, for actions. But what it means is that, of course, the you know, the character that has those four dice compared to a character that has one die has a lot more that they can do in one round of combat. Um, and also they have a higher base attack bonus that so they're going to hit more often and base attack bonus factors into parrying abilities. So they're going to be able to parry more often. It really kind of captures that as well, but in a more kind of historically leaning way rather than the kind of sword and sorcery fiction way, but I think that's a, another really interesting version. And there's some other kind of cool uh, versions of that um, that I've been sort of tinkering with, but um, I do think that that is a major source of some of kind of the 
for lack of a better term, the core issues of D&D, which is to say that, you know, the idea of like, you know, hit point, uh, hit point bloat and all of that sort of stuff, I think really in a large way comes from the fact that, you know, you're still doing a D8 of damage, but you have, you know, 3D10 hit points plus your constitution modifier instead of doing damage that is, uh, commensurate with the growth in hit points um, and that actually uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition does a kind of clever thing with this where higher their the kind of higher level weapons um, as martial characters kind of progress through their uh, level ups one of the things that is expected is for them to get uh, I can't remember what it's called a rune of striking or something I think is the specific term for basically a, a plus one upgrade but a plus one upgrade is not just a plus one to hit it is a plus one to hit and plus one damage die when you hit so you know it's a, a sword that has a plus one to hit but it has 2d8 damage when you hit with it plus your strength modifier and all that sort of stuff which is a, a cool thing because i think it you know it means that the martial characters do not feel like they get left behind in terms of uh damage dealing <laughs> potential um which i think is actually one of the it's one of the big things that the community is split on about pathfinder 2 is whether the changes between um the changes of relationship between kind of martial and magic are good because the people that really like magic from pathfinder 1 apparently are like oh i can't play a super overpowered wizard anymore and the people that like martial are like yeah but you know the the martial characters actually like not every character is going to multi-class into a caster class because martial characters are actually like viable as pure marshals at higher levels um so anyway that's a, a whole thing but yes i i agree that there's some really cool stuff with ODD and chainmail um that's worth looking at and now we're going to go to a new another caller um i got a set of call-ins from my buddy che webster over the course of recording this episode. So I'm going to just put his calls into this episode as well and uh, respond to those. And then we'll do some talk about kind of analyzing my uh, habits and free time and stuff. And that'll be the, then we'll do the outro, outro and that'll be the end of the episode. So yeah, let's get into that. Hey, Alan, it's Che. I'm just calling in. I'm really behind in listening to your podcast. 4th of May, Rock'em and Sock'em. Um, your comments around your like, depression and habits and change, generally, I suppose. Um, I was really interested. And I'm partway through the episode, and I'm just going to call this in before I forget, really. I wanted to recommend to you uh, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits as a book. You reading that book, you will validate the assertion that you made around, which you also got from the ADHDM, um, around the idea that, Basically, it's easier to form how it's easier to make a change when we feel good and when we have a sense of success. And this is absolutely validated by uh, the Stanford Behavioral Labs uh, research, which BJ Fogg leads. Um, I've got a thing on my wall, actually, a little post-it note above my desk, which says, I change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And that is directly taken from that book. So I absolutely wanted to say that, yeah, whenever you can make a small victory, a small success, that is going to build your confidence. I was also struck by the similarities that we share in terms of the way your depression manifests with exhaustion. Um, I wouldn't say that I usually end up with sort of a 14-hour kind of in-bed period, but there are times when I essentially shut down for long time, long periods of the day. So I may well be awake, but I'm not doing very much. 
Um, and this kind of often my coping mechanisms in dealing with that mood, maybe just that I end up staring at a TV screen, not really watching something, or I faff around, basically. I do a load of stuff that doesn't do anything. It's not actually achieving anything. Um, I'm shuffling papers from one pile to another in a metaphorical sense. And um, what it is is just that uh, sometimes I just don't have the energy to do anything. Um, at the depths of this, this turned out to me being basically sitting in a chair on my own quietly, uh, not doing anything for hours and hours on end. And uh, so I just wanted to say, like, whilst my behaviour is different to yours, I recognise some similarities. And I think it's healthy to spot that. Yeah, so I'm going to hop in here. Che has two more call-ins um, that I'm going to respond to you when we get to them. But A, uh, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits is uh, now on my Kindle. So uh, it's not at the top of the list for things to read, but it is near the top of the list, which is basically to say that um, I've got a, a couple of things uh, that I'm sort of working towards, and uh, we shall see what comes out of all of that. Um, anyway, but uh, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, I, I really think there is something about, and especially I think there's some uh, sort of a weird way that we kind of as adults end up sort of dismissing the value of some of those elements of, of the relationship between sort of successes and victories and habit formation. Um, I may have mentioned in that specific episode, the idea that um, I don't remember who it was who said it, but that, you know, if you want someone to enjoy uh, a board game that you play with them, you know, the way to do that is to let them win the, the first one, right? And that therefore that's uh, a whole kind of thing, right? That you, you know, they enjoy it by virtue of winning the first time and that that's sort of secretly there in this idea of, you know, you don't, you know, habits and, and practices and all that are sort of built upon fun and enjoyment and not just sort of powering your way through, which is a whole thing. I think there's a lot of, I've been thinking sort of related to that about the idea of the way in which, um, I think certain kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like valorizations of particular um, practices or ideals don't seem to do a very good job of kind of capturing the specifics, um, which is a very sort of general concept. But the, basically what I'm talking about, especially is the idea of you know, kind of valorization, especially in the modern West of kind of like, you know, uh, fortitude, um, not just physical fortitude, but mental fortitude as being related to um, uh, kind of kind of powering through and toughing it out and all that sort of stuff in uh, and all that. And that when you look at kind of the sort of societies that are, uh, often used as examples that they, you know, really believe in a whole lot of sort of support structure alongside that, right? That you talk about like the idea of, you know, the Spartans being super tough. And it's like, okay, yeah, the Spartans were probably super tough, but they also really believed in the value of, you know, deliberate kind of support structures that are designed to help make being tough 
easier almost, right? That, that there is a value in having that kind of, you know, the communal structure, right? That the Spartans, right? Their whole thing about being tough is not being tough individually, but being tough together, right? And being clever and canny and, right? That not just the valuation of like, you know, being, you know, able to kind of brute force solve problems, but also of being kind of clever enough to solve problems um, in other ways when you can, so that you have the kind of resources and energy and, and power to solve for the problems by brute force when you come up against something that you can only solve by brute force, right? That part of the idea is that the Spartans are, you know, learn how to, you know, sneak in the night and steal things from the enemy camp so that when the time for the battle comes and it's, you know, do or die, you know, power through with the phalanx, the phalanx is going to be able to power through sort of thing. And that, that, that I think is sort of lost sometimes in the, the valorization of kind of strength and fortitude that comes across in popular culture, um, which I'm, I'm getting way off. But basically what I'm getting at is the idea of, um, I can't remember who it was that said it, that, um, you know, ideas are tools too, right? And this idea that, um, this sort of idea that your your ideas and your mental structures and all that are tools just as much as uh, a watch or a pencil or a key or sunglasses or anything else that you might craft and that therefore you can, you don't have to be kind of random about this stuff. You can be deliberate about it. You can build the tools that are going to work for you rather than just sort of assuming that things are going to go fine anyway. This brings me back to habits. I wanted to say that I was really um, inspired really by you listening to you talking about the, the sort of the negative habits and the positive habits. Now, obviously, to be honest, I think that I'm with BJ Fogg when he says that when we form habits, they are actually initially always helpful. Uh, so for example, you use the idea of like buying in food, uh, you know, your dinner sort of takeout um, during the pandemic, which was helping you cope and making sure that you got to eat, which we obviously if you didn't eat would be really bad. And absolutely, when you created that, you started to do that behavior, and that behavior became reinforced by the benefits that they gave you, you formed a habit. And absolutely, it was helpful at the time. But you're right in pointing out that as time went on, as you kind of look back at it, you sort of see now, well, actually, I don't need that behavior anymore, but I'm sort of in the rut of habit. And so you come to the point where you want to change that habit. And I think it's great to, again, recognize the desire for change. So I commend you on that. So why I wanted to direct you to BJ Fogg's uh, Tiny Habits was simply because he actually has a methodology in there for building habits, changing habits. So basically what he calls behavior modification. Um, and it's actually the biggest thing I learned was that motivation is not to be relied upon. And in actual fact, the thing that resonated with me as I was listening to you is the truth that it doesn't have to actually be hard to do something, to take a behavior, to make an action. It just has to have the perception of being too hard and then you won't do it. Um, and I think that what's really great about Tiny Habits is BJ Fogg helps us to break our habits, the behavior we want really down to tiny, 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 tiny steps. And then from that build up to something more substantial. It's a cracking approach. It's really, really um, intuitive. And I'll tell you from personal experience that it works. So there you go. Hope that helps. Game on. Yeah. So thanks, Shay. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really do agree that a lot of the, 
I think that a lot of habits that certainly I build and that most people build are good in their original form. And that often what happens is that the habit is a response to like a particular uh, stimulus or a particular situation or something like that. And that the problem is when the habit kind of goes on unexamined and ends up kind of, you know, no longer reflecting the particular situation, right? The idea being that, you know, you have, for instance, like the idea of having a level of kind of nervousness around kind of Sunday afternoons is something that I think most of us who went through, um, went through the kind of, um, uh, school system stuff and, you know, to make sure that you don't forget about the homework that you need to get done and kind of, you know, gear up for that. But that, you know, once you're done with school or at least done for a while, that is a habit that is not any good, right? Because what happens is just that you're, you're stressed and nervous on Sundays when you should be relaxing and that, that that being a, a obvious situation of a sort of mental a mental habit or a, a mental track for lack of a better term a kind of a kind of path that has been trod so many times um that that becomes the way that you kind of move through things and that that's not doing its job anymore and instead is just kind of uh doing some uh bad stuff for you. And, and that's the, what's sort of my point about the, like ordering, uh, food delivered is that I, you know, it, I think really was a good thing at the time because it was a way to make sure that I was actually, you know, eating something instead of just, you know, going hungry because I didn't have the energy to cook for myself. Right. Um, but that over time, of course, what happened is that I, you know, allowed it to kind of twist and manipulate and, and, wasn't as focused on kind of examining or understanding it in the kind of subtle and necessary ways that I sort of should have been for, for the most benefit. And that therefore, you know, you end up with, okay, well, you know, this is, this is a sort of thing that I have been doing, but it's not quite like what I should be doing, right? The, the way things have been done is not the way they have to be done type thing, um, which is an important point too. So yeah. And I, and I also, I will say I have been working myself on the idea of breaking down habits and behaviors to kind of constituent parts, um, especially as a way to kind of recognize the, the ease, but also to sort of build up kind of energy and success. Um, one of the things that I've been doing recently is that I have been uh, brushing my teeth more um, specifically, partly as a, a way to have, for whatever reason, brushing my teeth is one of those things that is sort of perceived as difficult enough to be difficult without kind of any boost, but is not so difficult with a boost that it is impossible to do. Um, and that therefore sort of what I do is I do, you know, like the take all the medicine and go for a short walk. And that's enough of a boost to 
brush my teeth and brushing my teeth is enough of a boost to, you know, do something more important, like, you know, sit down and read for an hour and a half that it's, it's somehow has a sort of greater kind of level of executive dysfunction or, or kind of, I've been thinking of it as a, a catalyzing energy, right? The idea that um, within uh, biology and, and especially kind of the, the chemistry element of biology, right? One of the things that the way a lot of your body works has to do with having kind of multiple forms of things that happen. So like uh, aerobic versus anaerobic um, energy production, essentially, right? That your body has um, structures that contain energy and you use material and, and break down the structure and you get energy and that's how, you know, you get energy to your muscles to do stuff. But part of the point is that, you know, having oxygen in the chemical reaction makes it much, much more efficient. And so that's part of why you have a sort of different experience of, you know, trying to do stuff when you're out of breath versus trying to exercise in a way that you can kind of maintain an effective level of oxygen in your muscles and all of that. And then in the same way, there's sort of a mental thing there too, of having like a certain amount of energy that it requires as part of the sort of catalyzing stage in order to do something that will provide more energy in the doing essentially more, more mental health benefit in the doing. And that that's one of those things that I've been really kind of working on is, okay. So if you right, if your brain works like that, um, or in my case, if my brain works like that, how do you do, what do you do for the, the, you know, different building blocks, right? So you start with, okay, I'm going to, you know, take a drink, a glass of water, because that's going to make me feel good. And then I'm going to take my medicine and that's going to make me feel better. And I'm going to go for a walk and that's going to make me feel better. And then I'm going to brush my teeth and that's going to make me feel better. And then I'm going to go, you know, sit down and read for an hour and a half or lift weights or whatever else that is kind of the big thing that is going to do all that, that has sort of been built up to with these sort of successive stages of, needing more catalytic energy, but releasing more energy through the process after being catalyzed, essentially. Um, anyway, so that's uh, something that I've been working on. And I, uh, yeah, anyway, maybe that's useful for somebody listening to this. So anyway, yeah. Um, and now we are, I, I think I am going to try to do a short section of the extended response to Jason. I might do just kind of like a brief summary of my thoughts um, to keep it a little shorter and then do that sort of thing in a longer episode where I can kind of spend more time on it without being worried about the total time of the episode. Um, but yeah, let's get into kind of the analysis of benefit and good habits and all of that. All right, I'm going to try to keep this last section fairly short. Um, and give you guys sort of the, the summary of what is going on with me in terms of hobby stuff and planning and all of that, um, which is to say that I, um, I do not know precisely what I am going to do in essence. Um, I haven't, I don't have a, a solution figured out, but identifying the, the problem is the first step, right? Is part of the, the point. Um, 
which is to say that I am working on, I have uh, a couple of documents, actually, I guess I should try to consolidate some things, um, but sort of talking through, kind of writing down uh, plans for myself, but also kind of working on writing about, writing down kind of uh, experiences while um, keeping to these plans and sort of talking about the idea of like, so what's, uh, what's the effect of this plan or things like that. Um, and I think that is going fairly well. Um, it's one of those things that is uh, dependent on some level by a measure of kind of experimentation, um, which is going to take some time to work through, essentially, I guess, is where I have landed on that, that, you know, much as I would like to be able to kind of, you know, sit down and solve the problem just by planning, that's not really the way that it seems like it's likely to work for me. Um, so what I'm doing at present is kind of working through, trying out different things, um, working on embracing the concept of iterative design, which is one of those things that I've talked at least a little bit about on here, the, the sort of way that you, you know, do one thing and you build up on it, right? That you, you kind of, you know, do a stage and then you edit it down and then you build back up and edit it down and build back up and edit it down um, over the course of a series of sort of versions of whatever it is you're working on that hopefully you get to something that is better than what you had in kind of any individual draft from being able to kind of do that kind of iteration element, right? That, that, that iterative design element is certainly seems like that's a major element of a lot of um, larger products, although not everything, right? There's some things that you can't do that iterative design as well on. And some things, depending on kind of the nature of the project that you sort of have to, you know, it's, it's a little more difficult to kind of tear it all down um, that you might not actually be able to do quite as much um, sort of tearing down and, and going back to basics and, and depending on kind of how important the foundations are. I'm thinking especially like with regard to software development, right? That, you know, the, a lot of uh, coding is sort of built on the idea of, you know, you don't do the work multiple times. Um, and especially this kind of idea that you, you sort of use what you have to build forward and that that's good. But what it means is that, you know, if you try to sort of go back too far and tinker with things, you can end up having a lot of unintended consequences that come from, you know, messing with things further upstream, essentially. Um, and that that's a, a, an element of that type of process, uh, that type of, of process of creation, right? Which is not a, a, a good or a bad thing necessarily, but it is a, a factor, right? So anyway, um, I guess what I'm saying is that I, um, I do not have a uh, solution that I have come up with um, at present, I've got kind of a number of, of pieces that I think are working fairly well. 
Um, I've been writing every day. I have, I think I mentioned the, the dangerous writing app, which is a, basically an app that if you uh, stop writing for too long, it'll delete everything that you've written and therefore is a good way to train yourself to um, not edit while you write essentially, right? Because editing will, trying to edit while you write will slow things way down and you can't afford to slow down. Otherwise you'll lose everything. So you train yourself to just kind of move, to just sort of progress forward without trying to be as concerned with editing live and then you go back and edit later is the idea um so i've been so far i have i've not quite written every day for the month of may um there's basically three days that i did catch up work for two of them were um days when i was working on novella writing so i definitely uh wrote plenty um on those days but i did not end up uh whatchamacallit, did not add, end up writing something specifically for the daily writings. So I decided that I would just do that as catch up instead of trying to um, like carve out a chunk of those days writings to put into the document. And then on the 15th, apparently, which was Sunday. Yeah, Sunday, I didn't write anything, apparently, which I, I don't know how that happened. But whatever, one day off is not the end of the world by any means. Um, and part of the point has to do with the value of resilient habits, right? Of, you know, missing a day and being able to get back into it. So I am, uh, you know, trying to do every day for the month of May, write something, write for at least five minutes, basically, um, which I think has been really good. And I'm trying now to add sort of regular reading into that. Um, and so far I have finished two books. I finished uh, Ernst Jünger's On the Marble Cliffs and Roberto Bolaño's Distant Star. And I am about halfway through uh, Rakim's Sweat the Technique um, that I want to finish by Friday. When I want to finish on Friday or earlier. Um, so I'm on schedule for that and maybe even a little ahead of schedule. Um, depending on how you count the, the days. Um, and then the idea being to sort of have that be that the goal right now is 50 pages a day on weekdays and 100 pages a day on weekends, um, which I think I mentioned at one point, I um, did uh, 100 pages a day for the year. Um, and uh, that was good, but that's kind of hard to, to catch up to if you haven't read very much at all until May. Um, so that's my, my goal right now is just, you know, moving forward, do, do some more reading and have that be just a part of what I do during the day. Um, and then working on, I, um, I'm trying to figure out what's going to work best for the, the podcast and the YouTube channel. I'm also thinking about kind of tinkering with my YouTube setup a little bit. Um, there's a, an uh, episode of uh, Runehammer's, uh, one of his live streams where he is talking through his um, campaign and somebody asks him why he doesn't do actual play stuff. And he talks um, about a number of things, but especially about the effect 
of on the brain of knowing that you are being recorded essentially. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating and, and worth paying attention to. Um, and that therefore maybe I should do YouTube videos without my face in them um, to sort of try that out. Um, so I've been sort of setting up, doing a little bit of tinkering for that to try to get um, the, the, the OBS set up to do that. Um, and I guess we'll see what I end up uh, doing on that front. And the, the podcast has been going well. I've been enjoying doing the journaling stuff. Um, so yeah, I, uh, things are going pretty well. I just, I think I need to, you know, kind of do some experimentation for a couple weeks, maybe two or three weeks, maybe, and then kind of sit down with the, the data, the analysis and, uh, talk through kind of, okay, well, here's sort of how, uh, how the things look after some, some experimentation and some analysis to try to figure out a, a good kind of long-term solution. So anyway, that is kind of the, one of the big projects that I'm working on right now. All right. So this episode has gone on far too long. Maybe not far too long. It's only uh, an hour and 12 minutes at present, although the outro will add some to that. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, this is sort of more like what I want to do going forward, um, more kind of focused on sort of uh, discussion and presentation of ideas and all of that sort of stuff, um, and less of the kind of here's what's going on in my life sort of thing that I want to be kind of uh, contained in the journal, but not necessarily contained in the normal episodes as much, I guess. Um, that's sort of where I'm at right now in some ways. So anyway, um, I hope you all have enjoyed. Um, I hope everyone is doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and having lots of fun gaming. Um... I, I think this is going to come out on Friday, in which case I might move the journal release to Sunday, um, but I am not uh, sure about that. So I guess we'll see. A little bit, little bit of chaos never hurt anybody. That's not true, but you know what I mean. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I hope you have enjoyed. I hope you... Uh, are uh, doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and having lots of fun gaming or whatever else it is that, you know, causes you to have fun because that's valuable in itself. Um, anyway, I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Helms Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.